You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. A thought that uh, I hope will guide us through the Word and also uh, towards the Lord's table when we take the Lord's Supper is um, I just want you to ask this for yourself. What constitutes full and what constitutes empty in your mind? What does it mean to be full? I'll give you an example. I drive a small car, so the trunk is not very large, and then I am a messy person. So in my trunk is uh, a couple of lawn chairs, some sports equipment I never use, and some stuff really I ought to probably throw out. And then Andrea will ask me maybe, hey, could you swing by and pick up some groceries? And I can get about a bag or two of groceries in the trunk before it's full. But it's not full of groceries. Do you see the difference? It's full, but I did not fill it with groceries. Uh, A contrasting example would be if we're going to go on a family trip, like a vacation. We will, if we have the time and the whereabouts, what we'll try to do actually is to clean the minivan. We like to go on trips with clean, like a... Makes us feel like the trip will be better, I guess. So we'll empty it and we'll vacuum it. And then we fill it with the things that we need for the trip. And in that case, like it's filled with what we intend to have. It's full and it's filled with the same sense. That said, I suppose that if we ever uh, were driving on our trip to wherever we were going to go and we stopped at a rest stop and then take the dog to use the bathroom or do something like that, if, if we did that and while that was happening, one of our kids stumbled on treasure chests of gold. At no point, and they said, hey, Dad, we found treasures, like chests of gold. I would not say to them, that's a bummer because the car is full right? So it's full, but it's not really full. Or we would empty it in order to fill it. Or we would repack the car. There'd be kids with suitcases on their bellies, right, in order to accommodate our newfound wealth. I just want us to think about what constitutes full and what constitutes empty, especially in your life. What constitutes full and what are you filled with? It's sort of suburban Virtue signaling to talk about how busy we are. That's our love language with each other is, I live a really full life. Oh, your life is real. I say this all the time. I hear it said all the time. It's our common dialect. I assume from the outset this morning that your life is full. That's not the question. What is it full of is the question. What is it filled with? That's the question. We're going to ask this uh, with the scriptures in mind, but this question may be just as important or even more important for you to ask as we head towards the Lord's Supper. Because Christ is going to fill us with himself. That's the image. Do you make room or do you empty yourself out? All right, well, anyway, we are in a series, we're in the last Sunday in a series that we've called VBS Stories. 
So our goal over the past five weeks is Sunday over Sunday to take one day, methodically take a day of VBS at a time, take the lesson that will be taught on VBS and to sort of wrestle with it as a church as a way of helping, uh, since so many of us are serving, to put it in our hearts and minds, but also as a way of preparing those who will be handling the word with the kids. And so um, these are the things that we learned earlier uh, in earlier Sundays. Uh, so, what, five Sundays ago, we did Monday where we learned that Jesus is the Savior that God promised. The prophets foretold that one would come, and that person is Jesus. The following Sunday, uh, we did Tuesday, that this promised one actually exhibited the kinds of power that you would only, you would only attribute to God. Jesus did the things only God could do. The following week, we saw that Jesus knowingly was betrayed and rejected, that he saw his betrayal and rejection beforehand in front of him, and rather than avoiding it, he walked straight into it. And then last Sunday, we encountered his death and his resurrection and uh, how that was God's plan for our salvation. So that's, that's the past four days, sort of walking through. The Bible said he was coming. He came in power. He walked into hardship. And our victory comes through his resurrection, right? Here's today. The Bible is true, and it helps us to tell others about Jesus. Now, that's the the point. And as our scripture, we're going to be looking at the ministry of Philip to the Ethiopian uh, official which incidentally is one of the greatest stories in the New Testament. It's, you know, I have a kind of a high view. My view of inspired scripture is that there's individuals writing and it's, it's really all them, right? But the spirit sort of comes along and speaks and guides them as they write. There are occasional stories though that I sort of wonder if the spirit says, actually, let me take this one. Because they're just so well assembled, so eloquent and so deep. And this story is one of these. And the truth that will come out of this story in Acts 8, the truth for VBS is the Bible is true and it helps us tell others about Jesus. So, both of those statements are true. The Bible's true, true. And that it helps us to tell others about Jesus, true. But this is what I want to ask you today. Is I have two questions that I want you to ask as we work through this story. Question one Is this, in fact, the point of the story that we're going to read? That's the first question I have for you. And more importantly, the second question, which is, given the story that we do have and that we do read, if if that's not the point of the story that we're reading, what is the point? And how important is that? So is Acts 8 going to, in fact, tell us, is the main point of Acts 8 that the Bible is true and it helps us to tell the word about Jesus or is it something else? And if it's something else, how important is that message? That's what I want us to ask as we read today. Okay, so we're on our way to Acts 8, but I need to offer a little bit of background about sort of how God works in his church. The book of Acts starts at the very end of the ministry of Jesus. He's about 10 verses away from ascending into heaven. In, in Acts chapter 1. So Acts begins with the resurrected Lord, 
And in the first several verses, we see that for his remaining days on earth, he spent time meeting with the apostles and teaching them about the kingdom. That's how the book of Acts starts. Is our risen Lord teaches his disciples about the kingdom of God, which I find interesting purely from the fact that it doesn't say that he spent the remaining of his 40 days talking about his resurrection. Rather, the veracity of his resurrection is leveraged to talk about God's kingdom. It's a a bigger subject. And he talks about it, he's talking about the kingdom for these period of 40 days, at which point, towards the end, the disciples ask, Lord, are you now going to establish your kingdom on earth? I mean, you might think after all this conversation about kingdom, maybe perhaps Jesus is getting ready to establish it, to which Jesus gives a command, a promise, and a statement. And after that, he disappears. He ascends into heaven. So he gives a command, and he says, wait, just wait. Don't leave Jerusalem, stay here, okay? Then he gives a promise. This promise comes out of Acts 1. He says, the power of God is going to come upon you through the Holy Spirit. There's the promise. And then there's a statement, and you will be my witnesses. And when he's done saying that, he leaves. Which I find... uh, I can laugh because it wasn't me. I don't think the disciples were like, Lord, are you bringing your your kingdom now? Actually, I'm leaving. Is almost how the moment plays out. So he says, no, wait here. Power's going to come upon you through the Holy Spirit. Then you'll be my witnesses. And he ascends. It's an important order to note. This, is, this, this order is important for the book of Acts. <clears throat> the faithful and trusting people of God, so the people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, okay, receive the Spirit of God, and as a result of receiving the Spirit of God, they bear witness to the Lord. That, that order and pattern is very important. It's essentially the book of Acts. It's the backbone of the book of Acts. It shows up again and again and again that the faithful believers of God through the power of the Holy Spirit bear witness. And then you might add to that that this witness produces fruitful harvest. It's the power, the spiritually infused power of God that begets witness that produces harvest. That's the pattern of the book of Acts. God works through the Spirit. That's how he works. It starts by him working through the Spirit of the Apostles, but it, it expands beyond that. It's so important, by the way, that there's this moment. It's, it's kind of a, a niche moment in the book of Acts, but there's this moment. It's in the 19th chapter of Acts, so it's pretty far down the road. Uh, but Paul the Apostle comes across some believers who know lots about Jesus, and they're telling people lots about Jesus, and he inquires, like, I hear you know a lot about Jesus. What about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? They say, we haven't heard about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, what? They say, yeah. He says, well, where'd you get your baptism then? They say, well, we had John the Baptist's baptism. We know about Jesus, and we received the baptism of John. And you know what what Paul says? Stop. He baptizes them in the name of Jesus, and they receive the Spirit, and then they go on their way. I just want us to appreciate. I want us to appreciate God did not design us 
for spiritless Christianity. He did not intend his kingdom to spread in any other means than the power of the Spirit working through people. That's the pattern. The faithful receive the Spirit. The Spirit works in us to produce faithful witness. That faithful witness begets fruitful harvest. And that goes on and on and on throughout the book of Acts. Philip shows up first in the sixth chapter of Acts. So we still got a little more background, but he shows up the first time he surfaces in the sixth chapter. He's merely named. Uh, really, the eighth chapter of Acts is his kind of one-hit wonder. But uh, we first hear about him in the sixth chapter of Acts, and he's part of a new group of leaders that get established. Well, actually, what we see is it's a situation where the church of Jesus Christ has grown and swelled uh, to such a place that the need for spiritual leadership exceeds the capacity of the apostles. That's what happens. The need exceeds their capacity to which they say, we, we cannot abandon the ministry of first order, the preaching of the gospel and prayer. We cannot abandon that to do the other things. And so they turn to the church and they call upon the church to call upon individuals who will assist them in this leadership and there's three criteria that they, they, they turn to the church and they say, look for, look for individuals, look for men like this. They say, good reputation, wise, and full of the Spirit. That's the three. Good reputation, wise, full of the Spirit. And the church calls seven men to serve. The first is named Stephen. We're familiar, many are familiar with him. And the second's name is Philip. Philip is full of the Spirit. Now, this moment in Acts, I think, is important. I think it signifies a new dimension of the kingdom of God and the story because at, from this point on, it becomes commonplace that the power of God through the Spirit of Jesus Christ is working and extends beyond the borders of the apostles. By act, after Acts chapter 6, what we end up finding is regular people, like you and me, regular people who are full of the Spirit, who end up doing the same thing that the apostles did. It's a really important part. To me, it's a hinge in the book of Acts. In fact, you might, for the most part, the book of Acts leaves the apostles. There's a tiny return to, to Peter for a particular reason. But after that, it's kind of migrates away from the 12 uh, to the broader ministry of Jesus Christ and to the ministry of, of Paul. But it's the Spirit of God is able to work beyond the borders of the apostles. And the Lord does amazing things through that. Look at the beginning of Acts 8. I just want to read about four or five verses. I'm going to pick up in the fourth verse. This is about, uh, it's going to pick up about Philip. This is what it says. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's just make sure we see the pattern here, right? 
God puts his spirit in the faithful, and the spirit of God in the faithful produces powerful witness that begets fruitful harvests. There's the pattern. And it happens to work through Philip because Philip is full of the spirit. So it's just a good example. And this this is the nature of Philip that we're going to encounter here in, in our own reading today. So the section that we're going to concentrate on is going to begin in verse 26. <clears throat> this is the passage that will be for Vacation Bible School on Friday. And again, I'm going to read a few verses. All the while we're asking, um, remember, the, the point for the day in the curriculum is the Bible's true and it helps us to share, tell others about Jesus. Is that the point of this story? And if it's not the point of the story, what ought to be the point? Okay? Let me read 26 through 29. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. Now let's ask this first question. Who's the first mover in this story? I would say it's the Spirit of God. That's how all of this gets started. I mean, an angel, but I'd say the angel is an emissary of the Spirit of God. It's the spirit realm that's initiating the story. I would actually say this. Absent of the prompting of the Spirit, I think it's safe to say that Philip would not have ever gone. He'd have no reason to go. There's no observable rationale to do what he does. Let's just imagine, and we don't know, I think we're left to assume or to think that he's still ministering in Samaria. It doesn't say he ever left the city of Samaria. Why in the world would you leave a place where you have fruitful ministry to pick up and go to some place where you have no known ministry? That doesn't make sense. Why would you leave a city full of people who are responsive, where God has said, minister here and you'll be fruitful. Why would you leave that place to go to a desert byway where there's almost nobody? You wouldn't, absent the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the first mover in the story. It's also worth knowing when he gets down to the area of Gaza, who chooses the Ethiopian official? Once again, it's the Spirit. The Spirit tells him to go, and the Spirit tells him to stop. I have to imagine that there were other people who passed by the road when when Philip was down there. I mean, after all, it's a road. I can't imagine that the only human that was on the road between Egypt and Israel that day was one Ethiopian official in his chariot, right? I imagine if, like, if I were Philip, I would have gone to where the Lord would have told me to go, and then I'd be like, now what do I do? 
And people would ride by, and I'd wonder, like, am I just supposed to stand here? Not them? And eventually the Lord says, him. Talk to him. The Spirit of the Lord is the first mover, is the reason that Philip goes, and is the reason that Philip stops. And both of those things he would have never done if he was simply a rational Christian, a dutiful, rational Christian. In fact, in fact, absent of the Spirit, we would have said this would have been irresponsible behavior or foolish behavior. We would have said this doesn't match any kind of strategy. This doesn't, how, right? In other words, the Spirit of God and the knowledge of God and the sovereign nature of God seems to be acting in a way that's beyond our ability to plan or conceive. And Philip goes. Dutiful obedience lacks the insight that drives this whole story. Okay? Let's look at, I'll pick up in 29 and read to 35. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. <clears throat> so Philip has this, this divine appointment. And I even am under the impression that the, that the Lord has prepared the Ethiopian official similarly, right? And he's reading the scroll. He's coming back from Jerusalem. He's trying to worship God. I, I don't know this, but I would not be surprised if the Spirit of God was just as active, though maybe in a more subtle and gentle manner, preparing the heart of the Ethiopian. But really, it's, you can hardly imagine uh, a more promising interaction. I'd like you to imagine, like, what would you do if the Lord had you cross paths like this with someone? Like, if you were uh, in Philip's place where, you know, all you have to do is swing the bat and you're hit a home run. That's all you have to do. Someone's saying to you, we, I'm reading a passage about the crucifixion of Jesus from the prophets, but I don't know what it's talking about. Will you please tell me? What would you do? These are moments where, and it's probably worth you asking because if it's like, oh dear Lord, I wouldn't want that. That's noteworthy. But I would say like, Lord, man, Make my month. Make my month. Why Philip? I mean, what's his secret? Why does Philip get this soft pitch? Why does, why does he... 
And he goes, he, he goes down to Samaria. He's wildly successful. He gets sent by the Lord in a miraculous way to Gaza. He's successful. Why Philip? What's his secret? I don't mean like why him in a sense of justice. I mean like how Philip? What's his secret? What, what do I need to do to be like Philip? Well, there's, you know, we know very little. Like I said, Acts 8 is really Philip's only chapter. After Acts 8, he's not even mentioned. This is his moment in time. So there's a lot we don't know about Philip. But I will say, we can make a few observations. And these observations are here in front of us. And I'd say the first one is, well, Philip is full of the Spirit of God. He's full. I don't think Philip is full of the Spirit of God like my, my trunk was full of groceries. Okay. I think he's full of the Spirit of God like he's emptied it out and he's filled it up. He's full of the Spirit. And because he's full of the Spirit, he seems to have an energized witness. This is what's worth appreciating is he doesn't seem, there's zero evidence, absolutely zero evidence in the Bible that he is, was trained to share the gospel, that he was told to share the gospel, that he was obligated to share the gospel, that he was guilt-tripped into sharing the gospel, that he grew up in a family that was Great Commission-oriented. There's none of that. There's none of that evidence. The evidence in the text seems to produce my thinking that the Spirit of God, of which he's full, energizes him to share the gospel, energizes him to bear witness. Furthermore, I think because Philip is full of the Spirit, he even seems to testify about Jesus beyond the kinds of borders and boundaries that might make other people normally pause. I'll give you an example. We didn't read much of it, but in Acts 8, the part I did read, a great persecution breaks out. The Christians scatter out of Jerusalem. Right, Those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Again, you hear that? Sounds like they're just energized by the gospel. Not, there's no evidence that they were trained to do that. They were scattered. Okay? As they're reeling from what happened, their natural response is to speak of the Lord. And Philip goes down to the town of the Samaritans, the mortal enemy, the most hated people of the Jews. That's where he decides to go. Like of all the places on the earth, where would you go? Philip's like, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll try our mortal enemies because they probably need God too. And he goes there. It's just interesting to see Philip, who's full of the gospel, doesn't seem to dutifully share the gospel. He seems energized to share the gospel. In fact, even in our story, when the Lord finally says to him, the Spirit finally says to him, hey, that's the guy, you know what it says? It says Philip ran up to him. It's a small little word, but it's powerful. He ran over there are, some of you might have, you know, um, we have dogs, okay? Depending on the lifespan of the dog and the age and the kind of dog, some dogs sit and some dogs run. And some of you have had dogs before where when you put a leash on them, they immediately go straight to the taut edge of the leash, leash and they sit, they, they rear up, their front paws are not even on the ground, like you're bearing their weight. You could pluck a note from the leash. Bow. It's so tight, right? 
It's they're so energized. They were made to run. That's Philip. Philip seems to be like that. Philip seems to be full of the Spirit in such a way that the Lord just has to point him at something and unleash him. And he's off. He's off. How is it that Philip does this? Well, I think it's because he's full of the Spirit. It's not that he has a full life with the Spirit. We all have full lives. I think it's that he's full of the Spirit. Let's look at another passage, 36. We'll pick up. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This section of reading is so full of action and response. There's these, it's a very action-oriented section of reading. And, and you know, on this day, by the way, a man enters the kingdom of God for the first time. So it's this, this triumphant moment where someone who was reaching for God finds him fully, right? And he, it says he goes away rejoicing. I would say this. If I appreciate the pattern of Acts appropriately, I think he did more than go away rejoicing. I bet you, if the pattern's true, that the Spirit of God works in the faithful to produce witness that produces harvest, my hunch is he did more than go away rejoicing. He went away sharing. In fact, there's traditions, the most ancient traditions of our Christian faith, the Christian church in North Africa, they know about this person. In fact, they know his name. Their history traces to him. I think he went more than just rejoicing. Now, it says here that Philip, sometimes we, a lot of interest here, did some people go, did Philip just get teleported? Like, did he just disappear and show up somewhere else? And <clears throat> it's not entirely clear to me. I don't, I don't think the text insists upon it. It's the sort of thing if, I'm the sort of person that likes these miracles, so I'm like, yeah, he teleported. But there's some people that if you want to find a way to read this text where maybe, I don't know, I'd say it's not the point. Actually, the far more noteworthy detail is what happens when Philip shows up where he does. So somehow he ends up in Azotus, whether it's teleported or whether the text just sort of skips his departure. Either way, he's in Azotus, which is on the, the west coast. It's on the coast of Israel, sitting against the water, and it's towards the south. And it says he's starting in Azotus. He goes from town to town to village to village until he's to Caesarea which is on the north coast of Israel. So what it does say is, right, Philip's full of the Spirit. God moves him, he lands. Here we don't see that Jesus or the Lord told him to do anything. He lands and what does he do? He's like the Energizer Bunny. He does what the Spirit is at work in him to do. And he shares the gospel all the way up the coast. I just want us to appreciate to be full of the Spirit is not to be dormant until God tells you what to do. To be full of the Spirit is to be full of the joy of God 
And it seems to be continually showing up in one way, shape, or form in Philip's life. And on occasion, the Lord directs it. It's, God sometimes clearly speaks to people who are already full of the Spirit. They're the most useful to the Lord. There's no sign here that Philip is doing this because of duty or training. In fact, at this point in the book of Acts, at this point in the history of the church, the church age, the work of the Spirit is way out in front of methodology, okay? The apostles have yet to send a single missionary. No one's really thought about missions teams and commissioning and all of these things. That doesn't happen until well into the book of Acts where there starts to actually become some spiritual mindfulness about the, what God wants to do. In reality so far, the Holy Spirit is forcing all of the behavior. I'm saying, I don't think Philip's doing this because he thinks he ought to. I think he's doing this because he's full of the Spirit. Now, it makes me ask questions like, am I full of the Spirit? I would say my personality, I like to, I do okay finding somebody who's much better at something than me and then asking a positive question like, how do I be like them? I like heroes. So for me to see Philip and go, man, Lord, I hope I'm making room in my heart so that you can fill it up so that maybe you'd use me like you'd use Philip. Man, I'll take a hundred of these stories. I'll take missionary stories, right? aspirational stories. So I don't want you to be beleaguered by like the feeling of I'm not like Philip. How about aspire to the story? What does it mean to be like Philip? Okay, well, that's the story for Friday. And here's the VBS point. The Bible is true, and it helps us to tell others about Jesus. So I'll get back to the questions I asked earlier. Is this the main point of the story? Question one, is this the main point of the story? I am inclined to say no. This week in Bible study, we were studying this and somebody said, <laughs> they said, what, how do we even get to the Bible's truth in this story? Well, you can. Right? He leverages, he looks, uses the scroll of Isaiah to testify to Jesus, but I don't think this is the main point. So more importantly then, if this is not the main point of the story, what is the main point of the story? And is that main point more important? Like, I am not saying that the Bible is, isn't true. Of course it's true. Of course I believe it's true. And I believe it's, it helps us tell people about Jesus. I'm saying, what's the main point of the story? And is this main point the point of the story we're actually reading more important for a child in their fifth day of EBS or less important to the child in the fifth day of EBS? Let me ask it in a different way. If on Monday you effectively teach a child that Jesus is the promised one sent by God and on Tuesday you say that Jesus exhibited the attributes and properties that only God does, Jesus did things only God can do. And on Wednesday, if you say that Jesus knowingly 
not confusingly, but knowingly walked into hardship, rejection, and betrayal. Because on day four, you're going to say, because he died and resurrected so that you might have life through the forgiveness of your sins, is the most important thing on the fifth day to say, well, and the Bible's true and it helps you to tell about Jesus. Or is there something in this text that you would want to send a child home with? Something else. Like perhaps the existence of the Holy Spirit. Why would we not? Why would we not say to the child, Jesus, on Friday, and even more than the fact that Jesus has saved us from our sins, he has given us his spirit, which lives in us and helps us to do what God calls us to do. Again, it's neither that the truths of the Bible aren't true or that they aren't important. It's just that there are better truths, other truths in this story that are not just a little more important, so important to the life, the spiritual life of a child, of any person, of you and of me. Truths like we have not been left alone, but that God has poured his spirit out on us. Is that a small thing or a big thing? It's a huge thing. Truths like God loves all people and wants them to know and understand his truth and he uses his spirit to do it. That's very important. God uses people. He works through people with his spirit to do his work. These are really, really important things. What we do not want to do is offer a spiritless Christianity to a child. To say, Jesus died for your sins, now go home alone knowing that the scripture's true and it's your duty to talk about it. Is that what Philip did? No. Philip did not share the gospel because it was his duty. Spirit-filled Philip, energized by the power of God, talked about Jesus. Why in the world would we not offer the Spirit? Paul comes across Christians who know about Jesus and don't know about the Spirit. He says, stop. we got to fix this. Why in the world would we send some away without the Spirit? Philip was full of the Spirit. Now, I know we have full lives. <clears throat> I know we all have full lives. Uh, my question is, what is your life full of? Like, what are you full of? And I know that there's times in our life where they're so full that you add a little bit of spirit and now it's full. That's not the kind of full I'm talking about. I'm not talking about topping, topping yourself off, like putting the spirit on top of all the other junk that's cluttered your life up. I'm I, I do not think that's what they mean when they say spirit, Philip's full of the spirit. I'm talking about like emptying your life and filling it. In, like making room for God to take up residence. Practically, you know, if you're asking, well, practically, what, is, what do I do with this? It's, it, this? it's not a one day metamorphosis. I can't say, or preach, nor help you to say, so tomorrow when you come in, be full of the Spirit when you help these kids. But, I will say this, it, 
it's not a one-day metamorphosis, but it is a daily metamorphosis, meaning every day in the life of a believer is a day of emptying and filling if you're walking with the Lord. It's a day of taking off and putting on. It's a day of laying down and taking up. It's a day of listening and speaking with God. Right? It's daily. It doesn't happen in one day, but it happens every day. Every single day that you have a life with the Lord, you are filling yourself up with something. You're making room for something or you're setting something aside. And I will say that that matters for VBS. Just, I would just say this week, this week, even just make a tiny bit of space just to pray over the names of the kids before you, 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 know, you come into the hurt locker and experience it all, right? Just pause for a second. Lord, please fill my life with your spirit. Take off, put on. Lay down, pick up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> and it's not a long walk to go from VBS to the Lord's table here with this idea. This, we, in fact, we are about to take, we are about to go through an ordinance that symbolically shows us filling our lives up with Christ. Lord. Help us to teach and behave and live as though the spirit of the living God is at work. We pray that for our lives. We pray that for the work this week. We, we pray it over all things, that we, would, that we would live as though God is alive and at work in us, Lord. I pray, Lord, for each one of us, especially now as we begin to set our minds towards the Lord's table, that we invite, Lord, may your spirit come in me. Lord, and show me the things that need to come away. How can any of us not sit here in confession? As we behold the ways we filled our lives with things of this world. You know, the kingdom of God, Lord, is like a treasure that a man finds in a field. And when he finds it, he gives, he empties his life of everything so he could have it. Lord, help us to hold on to that truth. Help us to hold on to that truth. So that your spirit might fill us up. Fill us up so in a way that would energize us to be natural witnesses of who you are just to bear witness that our very breathing in and out would bear witness to who you are. Lord, and then I know you'd use us. I know you'd speak. I know you'd act with us because we'd be so useful to you, Lord. We, we, we recognize, Lord, that you and your spirit don't simply do all the work. You mediate your labor through your people. And we're your people, God. I pray, Lord, for the person here who's forgetful that they would remember they're not alone and that the spirit of the living God is in them. I pray for people here, all of us here, that we would learn to not act and speak and live as though God is not actively at work in us, Lord, but rather the opposite, that we point to through testimony things that the God, God is doing in us 
We'd share that, Lord. Help us to share that so that our church might be in communion as you are in communion with us. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.